You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad. And this week, we're going to hear an Irish-Canadian story. It's an isolated Ojibwe First Nations reservation in northern Ontario. It's the setting for Ogoki Call of the Wild. And it was here in the 1970s and 80s that the Mulrooney family from Limerick lived for seven years. And over two decades later, Deirdre and her mother Mary returned to the reservation to hear the Ojibwe community share their shocking and moving history. Deirdre Mulrooney, she's going to give us a little bit of background. She's here with me in studio on the family and the story and what brought you there in the beginning and about your mum and dad being here in Canada. Deirdre, thanks a million for being in your studio in Dublin and my studio in Ottawa. Welcome. Thanks a million, um, Austin. It's brilliant to be um, having this chat with you. Thanks for inviting me on. So going back to the start, your mum and dad, uh, emigrants to Canada. Yes. uh, So my mum and dad are from Limerick and they got married in the 60s and when they got married uh, they immediately went to Toronto and um, this was the time of the draft Dodgers actually so I was born among them (laughs) so I I know I look a lot younger but but, um, yeah so uh, my mother had trained as a teacher actually in Liverpool in a place called uh, Mount Pleasant and um, she started teaching immediately and then in Toronto and there there was a big need for teachers there at the time there was no problem you know they were crying out for teachers and um, and then my dad also trained as a teacher and they and of course three of us came along myself and my two brothers Dara and Patrick and then another brother Richard came later he was actually born in Nakina up in way up in North Ontario um, and um, so then like I was I think six years old and my other two brothers were maybe five and four and my parents um, adventurers that they are the good um, Celtic adventurous spirit um, my dad said that he would love to see the as he called it the real Canada of the native people and they were employed by the federal government to go up to um, and it was then called Indian Affairs mm-hmm. to go up to this remote fly-in fly-out uh, res- reserve in remote North Ontario Ogoki so we, we were all in myself and my brother's uh, we were all in school there uh, with the Ojibwe, and there were some Cree as well. And um, it was really an unforgettable um, experience. And like, and when we were up there, luckily my dad was into photography, okay. and um, he took loads of photographs. And he, that he, you know, on a Yashikamat camera, and also he filmed on Super 8 uh, films mm-hmm. too. And um, so when I came back. To Ireland, you know, when I went to convent school in Limerick and in County Clare, boarding school in County Clare, I was, you know, looking at these photographs going, oh my God, like what on earth? Where were we? And who are these people? You know, so I was always very um, fascinated, uh, you know, to kind of catch up again with our Ojibwe uh, friends Um, and so I finally got the opportunity to do that 
when I had applied. It was the first radio documentary I ever made. So I've made 10 now. Um, and I applied to the Broadcasting Commission of Ireland uh, for funding. And uh, News Talk was the broadcaster. Mm-hmm. And to my absolute delight, it was funded in 2008. So I got this incredible, it really was now an opportunity of a lifetime. Mm-hmm bring my mother back up to Ogoki Post. And in those days, Austin, it's hard to believe now we're here talking on Zoom, um, you couldn't even phone the reserve. Like, we couldn't arrange anything in advance. So Mm -hmm. can you imagine, you know, like going up on the train and then getting the plane in and, like, just... We were just hoping that, like, everyone (laughs) would be there and they wouldn't mind, you know, and they were absolutely... So welcoming and delighted and, um, you know, well, what really struck me was when they actually said to us, you know what, you're the only people who've ever come back. Right. Imagine that. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, um, I don't know, I mean, coincidentally, now this was in 2008, but coincidentally, um, this if you know about the story about Gore Downey and Tragically Hip, um, like maybe eight or eight years later, uh, for his legacy album, mm-hmm. the amazing Gore Downey um, focused in on the same reserve on Ogoki, um, on a story that was actually captured by... Now, I have to tell you that, that the Ojibwe people love the fact that we were Irish, and they really identified with the, you know, the history of Ireland as being a colonized people and all that. But this, um, the story, the very tragic story of Charlie Wenjack, who's now, this story is on the school curriculum all across Canada. It was actually, did you know this, an Irish, a journalist of Irish origin who wrote that story in McLean's magazine right. in 1967, Ian right. Adams. His parents um, had been missionaries to Africa, I think. And he uh, he was the one who kind of zoned in on that and immortalized that, and it actually brought about the closure of the residential schools. So, um, I mean, we know when I was there, I was six years old. I didn't have a clue of any of this context. I mean, it was a surprise for me when I went back. Um, but um, so, so my parents were part of the ne- after the residential schools were shut, um, where the teachers actually flew in to the remote reservations and lived you know, with the the community and taught the school there so that, you know, like we're all entitled to that children could stay with their parents and grow up and also start to learn their own way, their own language, you know, their hunting and fishing and, um, you know, bond and connect with their parents and their ancestors. So that was really just, we were part of the very beginning of that. And actually, um, as they said about my dad, um, which and it may sound un- politically incorrect, but this is what you know the Ojibwe people said about my dad. They said that he was more Indian than the Indians themselves. So, 
<laughs> so, you know, I mean, we were very, very lucky to be welcomed into the heart of their community. Two things. One, you say you went back to school in Ireland. Did the family move back to Ireland or were just, you were, due to, like me, shipped off to boarding school? I was shipped off. I was shipped off. At least it wasn't from residential school. Though it was boarding school, um, Cahir Khan um, in, in uh, Kildicert, uh, County Clare. Right. Now, the other thing that's... It was crack, actually. The other thing that was fascinating there where you say it was um, an Irish... A journalist who was responsible for the implementation of the closing of the schools. Unfortunately, it was an Irishman who wrote the policy for the opening of the schools, and he's bur- oh. and he's buried here in the graveyard in Ottawa, in uh, right. Beechwood. Of, of the residential schools. Correct. He was the one that drafted the policy for the Canadian government, uh, and he was from. Yeah, the Irish are <laughs> on every side of this story, really. So I, I came back. Uh, I've been here all of secondary school. So basically, like um, the school in Ogoki was Henry Coaster Memorial School, and we also were in another one called Cat Lake for one year as well. Those schools only went up to age twelve, so you know we would have had to go to boarding school in Canada. Right. You know, my parents being teachers. Yeah. They had three months off every summer. So uh, they used to come back, and, they, you know, they used to come back to uh, Clare, to Kilkee County Clare, a lovely place if anybody knows it. It they is. They come back every summer for three months. They'd be going from Agoki to Kilkee County no. Clare. <laughs> back up to Agoki. And actually it's on the same line of latitude, which is kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, but the weather is totally different. Yeah. Deirdre, we're going to break here and we're going to listen to the documentary. There is a town in North Ontario Stream comfort memory to spare And in my mind I still need a place to go All my changes were there I could hardly believe it. There we were, my mum and I, in Toronto train station, setting off on our return journey to Ogoki Post. 
The isolated Indian reservation in northern Ontario, where my parents, from Limerick, ran the local school for seven years in the late 70s and early 80s. Myself and my brothers, Dara and Patrick, were taught by Mum in one class, while Dad, who was the principal, taught the class next door. We were the only non-natives in that community of about 200 Ojibwe Indians. But that was 30 years ago. Back in Ireland, photographs in our family album kept me wondering for years and years afterwards. Who were these playmates swinging on the monkey bars with us? Who were these people in canoes and on skidoos? Curing moose, caribou and beaver hide, brandishing sturgeon, trout and pickerel, and plucking geese for our camera. What were they doing there? And, indeed, what on earth were we doing there? After years of trying to convince my parents to come back with me to satisfy my curiosity, here I was, in the next millennium, with mum and tow, looking for the train to Nikina. Well, dear, this is exciting, eh? <laughs> Keep coming ahead, please. Over 20 hours later, at 5.30 a.m., in the vastness of North Ontario, we were helped off the train at Nikina. It was cold and dark. As promised, a van was waiting for us with the keys and the ignition and handwritten directions on how to get to Pennox Motel where we rested our heads until our 4 p.m. flight to Ogoki. But this was just the first leg of the trip. As Indian reservations go, Ogoki, a fly-in, fly-out reserve, is isolated. We flew in over the muskeg on a small twin otter. Despite the wind and lashing rain when we set down in Ogoki Airport, the family's old Ojibwe friends all pitched up in their pickup trucks to welcome us. All those years ago, it was my dad's passion for knowledge and the out-of-doors, nourished by youthful adventures in Plassey, County Limerick, Kilkee, County Clare, his university days, and mum's teaching expertise and open spirit that had brought us here. Later that night, another old friend of mum's, local neonatal nurse, Pearl Achnipaneshkam, called over to see us and opened up over a cup of tea about her own experience of the residential school system in the 1960s, the notorious precursor to the on-reserve system, which was where we came into their lives and their story. Though Mum had some knowledge of Pearl's family experience, this was the first time she heard the story from Pearl herself. Okay. And you went to school that was a residential yeah. school, was it? So what was that like? Uh, <laughs> as good as, uh, yeah, you know. But uh, I, I did go there for eight years. And, uh, well, during that time uh, there, we did loads of brother. And he ran away and he froze to death. And oh my God, he was about twelve years old. That was that was terrible. Yeah. yeah. What was his name? Charlie. In the university, French University, I think it is. There is a um, theater. Charlie Wanjack Theater. It's called. Wow. Yeah. 
That's amazing. That's uh, mm. the only a tribute to him. Yeah. Mm. It was uh, when he died. Um, Ian Adams, um, one of the newspaper writers, was the one that put that story in the Maclean's. Like many native people today, Charlie Wenjack was lost in the white man's world. Charlie Wenjack would have been 13 years old on January the 19th, and it's possible that during his short and disturbed life, someone may have taken a snapshot of him, one of those laughing, open-faced, blurred little pictures one so often sees of children. But if a snap was taken, nobody knows where it is now. There are five police pictures of Charlie, though. They are large, eight-by-ten prints, grey and underexposed, showing the thin, crumpled little body of a twelve-year-old boy with a sharp-featured face. He's lying on his back, and his thin cotton clothing is obviously soaked. His feet, encased in ankle-high leather boots, are oddly turned inward. In one of the photographs, an Ontario Provincial Police Sergeant is pointing down at Charlie's body, where it lies beside the CNR track. So, mm. McLean's got a hold of that, so they printed out the story of, the, of his life in uh, mm. the school. When he died, eh? mm. that's what they did. Yeah, and obviously he, he was running away to yeah. go home? or Yeah, well actually, though, he was uh, heading in the wrong direction, so he was going the other way. Down the, the tracks. It is the exact spot where, in the night of October the 22nd, Charlie collapsed and died from exposure and hunger, just four and a half feet from the trains that carry the white world by in warm and well fed comfort. When they found Charlie, he didn't have any identification. All they got out of his pockets was a little glass jar with a screw top. Inside, were half a dozen wooden matches. They were all dry, and that's all he had. Charlie Wenjack was an Ojibwe Indian attending Cecilia Jeffrey Indian Residential School in Kenora, Ontario. He became lonely and ran away. He died trying to walk 400 miles home to his father, who lives and works in an isolated reservation in northern Ontario. It is unlikely that Charlie ever understood why he had to go to school and why it had to be such a long way from home. It is even doubtful if his father really understood either. And then when my brother died, that's when uh, my father... My father never understood why his son died. And he went to his grave without not ever knowing. And my mother today, still to this day, waits for somebody to tell her why. Why he ran away? No, why he had to die. Because they told them, we're going to take care of the kids. Mm -hmm. And they thought so they, they could trust the government. Yeah. My father never went to a school, eh? but my mother did. My mother did go to a residential school. And uh, when my brother had died, they brought him home with the principal. They flew him in that time. And I've never seen my father angry. But it took four men to hold him down. He was ready to attack the principal. When that happened to us, I was always scared for my children. When they become 12, that they would die. That's what I actually thought. 
I was always so scared, and I had four of them. I had three sons and a daughter. I was always scared, you know, because it traumatized me when my brother died. Of course. Yeah. 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 And you feel, I suppose, you feel really helpless as well. Oh yeah. Well, that's when they started closing them. A year after his death, that's oh. when they started closing the residential schools. Right. Yeah. So um, um, I think. Uh, the one, the, the Nagoki here, uh, the first school was opened in 69, I believe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. and, and was that a lot better? Do you think that was a lot better? Oh. Or yeah, it was a lot better because um, it just stripped our parents and uh, they, they just couldn't cope mm-hmm. of what happened to them. And... Uh, but that was the government's way of saying, you know, we can take care of you guys and, you know, the kids will be taken care of, and which wasn't the, the case. Mm. A lot of abuse uh, went on, you know. We did suffer a lot of abuse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you had to grow up real fast. You know, you had to fend for yourself even though you were six years old. Ogoki's Henry Coaster Memorial Day School, which my brothers and I attended alongside Pearl's children, Charlie Wenjack's nieces and nephews, was lobbied for by the Ogoki community after McLean's shone their light on Charlie Wenjack's shocking and unnecessary death. How was it for the white teacher from Limerick, my mother? Well, I loved my time with children in the school here. I did, really. It was just yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call it, it says I wasn't this uh, distant person because they called me Mary. Remember mm-hmm. they? Yes, yeah, so I was just married to the children. So they they were quite very comfortable, I think, yeah. with me. Yeah. And uh, I think they were they were, they, were, they did relax. You know, yeah. once they once they knew they could trust me and that I just uh, you know wanted the best for them. And yeah. you know, and they res- responded. Some yeah. you know, those children are just tops. Like you know. The best mm. of the children outside, you know, all of the kids here—they were just as the same, uh, the same uh, um, capabilities uh, that, as, as my children, really. And it's just the government really destroyed so much yeah. by not encur- instead of encouraging, just uh, taking away the human rights. When we left here, the minute that you stepped into the school, they took everything that belonged to you. And they gave you these clothes to wear. They mm-hmm. cut their hair, same as everybody else. They cut their hair. Doesn't matter how beautiful your hair was, they still cut it. You know. Yeah, all little pixie cuts, yeah. really short, yeah. and short. they were all deloused too. And you know, DT, 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 yeah, DT, sprayed, sprayed. Yeah, we were just white. You walked around with your hair white, you know. Oh my God, that must well, have been terrifying. We didn't even have lice. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And scrub, eh? They used to scrub us. Oh, just stripped them down. Yeah. Yeah. Like jail. Wow. And how long did you have to stay there? Like months at a time, or did you get? Well, ten months out of the year. We were only home for six weeks, eh? Because during that time we we traveled. So, you know, but we never came home for Christmas either or Easter or any holiday. We never came home. We didn't even come home with us anyway. 
we didn't come home when my sister and my brother died. All we got was a letter from our parents, and it was written in syllabics, and we couldn't read in syllabics. And then these things were taken away, you know, the letters themselves. And uh, I, I used to try and keep that as long as I can because I could smell home. I'd smell the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the, the envelope, eh? because it, it would smell. Smoky. Yeah. And were you allowed to speak uh, Ojibwe? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> used to make us pay 10 cents if you spoke Ojibwe in front of a supervisor. 10 cents you had to pay. And I remember one year I only paid 20 cents for the whole year. You know, you have to be mindful of, uh, you know. And they always called us, I don't know, rude. You know, when you spoke your language, they told us we were rude. It must have been traumatic. It was. We were, uh, the way we grew up was that uh, after we came out of there, eh, we didn't know. We didn't know nothing. We didn't know what it was to love, what it was to... Uh, you know, we had respect, eh, but it was forced. It was a thing that was forced on us. But we knew later what it was. But you know, but to love, we didn't. We didn't know that. Mm -hmm. We did not. We did not know that because uh, whenever you were sad or anything like that, you know, the supervisor would tell you to shut up when you cried, and you had to fend for yourself. So you went in the corner and hid or in uh, some kind of closet and you cried by yourself. It almost makes me want to yeah. cry. It does yeah. make me want to yeah. cry. <laughs> yeah. we, we wore a tag, yeah? paper tag. That's all we had. What did it say? We had our names and I guess where we were going, I don't know. Uh, your parents' names? Yeah. We yeah. just had our names and then wherever we were going or whoever was supposed to pick us up or I don't know. But we didn't we couldn't read. I don't know what it said that text. You don't know. Yeah. No. Well, we never read. We didn't know a thing. But they say you just put you on a plane, on a train, and away you go. But they, you know, uh, life today, like you know, you we don't really belong anywhere. Truthfully, you don't feel you belong anywhere. Mm, you know because. Uh, because of where you went, and uh, and even about the religion, I, I don't I don't believe I don't belong anywhere. I don't believe I don't uh, you know think I belong in a culture. I don't understand enough, and then I don't belong in the other one either. Mm -hmm. So you're always in the middle, mm -hmm. all the time. That's that's how it feels. Mm -hmm. So there must be this conflict yeah. within you, really. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's been it's mm -hmm. been like that, and then when when we were raising, when I was raising my children, they used to always tell me, "Oh, that's a white man's way." It had already become your way, yeah. like without realizing. Yeah. Yeah. We raised our children the institutional way, because you had been institutional. Yeah. That's all. That's all we. That's all we knew. Mm. But we didn't love them either. We were not affectionate. How can you be? Yeah, because you never got it. No. Oh, yeah, it must have been heartbreaking for your parents as well. Oh, to yeah. yeah. Have to let mm -hmm. you go. Yeah. You know? 
Because there, well, we we ask our parents now eh, what what it used to feel like, and they used to say, well, they used to pick them up, uh, you know, they used to make a day trip for all of us. Eh? So that when the plane landed, we up there, all the parents would be sitting there till dark. Must have been till dark. Horrific. And then they would all go home afterwards. They were not, uh, you know, if the plane landed maybe about 12 o'clock, they wouldn't, none of them would go home till dark. And then uh, when they went on a trap line, yeah, they would be crying as they walk around and that sort of thing, yeah. No, the government really knew what to do. Yeah. So so then they were, they, they like, you kind of pressurized the government yeah. to have the school here. Yeah. Yeah. That's when they started to... Uh, Wow, those intriguing photographs I'd been gazing at for years were suddenly falling into spine-chilling historic context. They were literally a snapshot on their road to recovery, empowerment, and cultural reclamation in the aftermath of that great injustice that was the residential school system, a process that is still very much in progress. In the 1970s, my parents, Mary and Patrick Mulrooney from Limerick, brought my two brothers and I to live in Ogoki, an isolated Indian reservation in North Ontario. They were running the local school, which was set up following the dismantling of the controversial residential school system. As a six-year-old going to live there, I was expecting powwows, teepees, drumming, all that stuff we'd seen in the movies. But apart from the hunting and fishing and disappearing with their families to go trapping, they were exactly like us. As for fashion, it was all Bay City rollers with tartan down the leg and on the cuff. There was no apparent expression of native cultural traditions at all. Now, it was dawning on me that this was the result of three generations' implementation of the government's shocking kill the Indian, save the man philosophy, as it was known. Former chief of 20 years, Eli Munias, explains. Well, in, in, in this area here, I think that, that the, uh, the destruction of the culture began uh, way earlier you know, like in the 1850s, like 100 years earlier, you know, before I went to school, the churches came here, the missionaries, you know, and they, they began outlawing those, uh, uh, the culture, the ceremonies, the dances, uh, and the beliefs, uh, they began outlawing them, mm-hmm. calling them the works of the devil, you know, that, that, kind, of, that kind of downplay, you know, and then the, the the believers, you know, the, the the people that believe in those things, had to go underground. Eh? Even the police became involved. Eh? Like if you were caught doing that, and the police come and take your stuff, eh? your uh, your um, bundles, you know, your cultural items, your pipes, you know, your sacred pipes, and your medicines, whatever you have. Eh? They come and 
take them so you can practice your uh, the ritual you're talking about the ritual dance mm. it's the same thing yeah? I used to drink a lot there and I wanted to get out of that there because I, I did too much you know like I used to drink too much and and I couldn't do my work here, you know. And so I needed to do something to, to help me stop it. So that's what I got into, into, um, into the culture. Yeah. Into dancing, into uh, other things. I got a sweat lodge here. So it's, it's the same thing here. Like, uh, it's just something I do, you know, to, to keep me uh, sober, you know. In fact, I, I started with the sweat lodge first, way back in the mid-80s. And uh, just soon after you guys were gone, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And along the way, I learned other things, you know. I learned the dance. They banned all the culture, and they banned uh, ceremonies. I mean, you couldn't do them. Even here, eh? the priests used to live across the river. You see in the picture his house, eh? the old pictures, uh-huh. and he wouldn't let you do any ceremonies. But how, it's me. You couldn't dance, you couldn't drum, you couldn't sing, you couldn't do a sweat, sweat lodge, nothing like that. You couldn't do anything like that. It's amazing. In fact, in the songs they made, you know, in the church songs, yeah. one of them says there, I'm throwing away stupidity the song goes there. That stupidity, of course, is the native uh, thinking and native culture. In peril of forever losing their traditions, this new phase of their journey began 15 years ago when a member of the Blackfoot tribe from Alberta came to teach them their own culture. Now, Eli is one of a few people who hold regular sweat lodges, and this August they had their 15th annual powwow. And that's the traditional one, yeah. not the show-off one. By the way, uh, we have a, across the river, yeah. we have a lodge over there. If you walk up the river here, yeah. if you look across, you could see it. It's called Wabinowin. What does that mean? It's a, it's a ceremony. It's a Thanksgiving ceremony. What we do is uh, we make a big pot, a medicine pot, and everybody puts their medicine in there. It's water, eh? we boil it. And then we do some cooking there, native foods, sturgeon, most meat, whatever. And then we do the ceremony in there inside there. And uh, we do talking, you know, and then we, do, we smoke the pipe. Then we do some drumming, do some singing, and then we do some naming ceremonies ah. for the babies or anybody that wants a native name. We give names in there. What that is is just um, it's one of those teachings. Eh? It's in that rock paintings, by the way. It's in there that large teaching, eh? mm-hmm. and you have to give thanks to everything you take. The trees you cut, you know, the fish you take, the moose you kill, um, the water you drink, you know. You have to thank the sun, you know, the sunlight, uh, the moon, you know. The moon's also a helper on the earth for life to go on. We call her the grandmother, uh, the moon. And uh, it helps Mother Earth uh, keep life going. So we give all that thanks uh, in that lodge 
And then we put some medicine in the water. The water needs help to uh, to renew it, to renew its strength. So we put some medicine in that too. Supposedly, it's the womb of Mother Earth, eh? and you go in there too. That's why you use water there too. It's like you're born again and you come out there, eh? you're cleaned out eh? It's very sacred. It's dangerous too. Eh? You can't fool around in there. You have to be careful what you're doing there. So, in this drum here, it's like uh, the heartbeat of the, of the Mother Earth. Eh? So it signifies that in the in the culture. So that's what you use the drum in there, in the mm. sweat. When you do a ceremony, you sing. Yeah. And you sing. So that's how it's done. So, okay, so I'll sing that uh, water drum song, one of the songs we know. It's a love song. Right. You know what it says? It says, um, I love you as I drum by this big river. I love you like the water that flows. I never ask you anything. I just come to you. Water is like that. Eh? Water doesn't ask questions of who you are. Eh? It just comes to you to give you life. Eh? It doesn't discriminate that. It comes to you, it comes to a snake, it comes to a twin, it comes to everybody. So Beautiful song. Yeah. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah, that's one of the teachings of that water drum. And that's a, a traditional... Yeah. You won't hear this song in the, in the show-off uh, power. Mm. As we walk through the now-developed village, Mum seemed to have a connection with every single person we met. For example, here is Yvonne Baxter, surrounded by her seven kids from five to thirteen. I taught her to read. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. did good reading in there, didn't we? Yeah, yeah I, I learned a lot from your mother. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. And so I learned most of my uh, math and reading from from those days, oh, and I still do. I'm pretty good at math today because yeah. of you guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We worked hard, really. And yeah. And they enjoy coming home. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dublin, Ireland. I told them about the, when I was in the school here where I learned all my math and reading, like a lot of people do. Those are the best learning days I taught, anyway. <laughs> yeah. With the Mulroonies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was really fun. Yeah, it was good. It was good. We all taught, so. Yeah. Most of my 
relatives around here. Talk about it every now and then. Wondering if they were still kicking. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Wondering where your whereabouts were. And Are we yeah. <laughs> I hoping, mean, hoping to see you guys one day again. Later, we sat for a moment at the site of our former house, which, along with the old schoolhouse, has disappeared without a trace. Deirdre, we're sitting here on the banks of the Albany River, where the Ogoki and the Albany River meet. And this is exactly the spot where we had our home when we were here in Ogoki. Um, so it's bringing back so many wonderful memories. And we've received a wonderful reception from all the people here. Mm -hmm. um, they were absolutely delighted to see us. And likewise, I was delighted to be here. So are there, have you noticed a lot of um, changes? Oh, huge changes. Um, the school we worked in is gone. The two, two buildings, the place we lived, all of that is gone. And there's a totally new village, fabulous school. I've seen uh, all new homes, um, electricity, vehicles. Uh, when we were here, I think there was maybe one vehicle or two. Now people are driving around in these four-wheelers and people are much more independent. They have uh, all the facilities in their homes, or televisions, which isn't always the best thing, but they have televisions. And, uh, except the only, uh, I would imagine it's very difficult for them uh, because of the cost. The cost of living here would be uh, very high uh, to bring in any food or clothing or it's uh, 44 cents a pound to uh, transport uh, items to Gogi so uh, with the big families that most of the young people appear to have now uh, just it would be difficult most of the students that I taught would have between six and eight children now uh, but where we're sitting right now, sitting here uh, by the banks of the river, it is just like heaven on earth with the sun shining and the lovely blue sky and the trees uh, all around us and the sound of the brook and just lovely. We brought our family photo album down to the band office with those great images of the Ogoki people throughout the 70s and 80s and us. Practically the whole community came to look at their former selves in an Irish family album. Even now, like, in, like all these memories are kind of like, you know, kind of flashing on me now. <laughs> I haven't thought about them in so long, and it's like, you know, it's good to look at the pictures because you see the old buildings, you know, and it's like a place where, you know, when you're a child, you, you kind of miss those, kind of miss those days, you know. Later that evening, Bruce drove us in his 4x4 to Russell's Sweat Lodge out in the bush. They brought offerings of tobacco to throw in the fire, bottles of water to drink in between the four sweat rounds, and a change of clothes. First we go get the wood, then uh, we make fire, put the, put the rocks there in the fire. We call them the, the grandfathers, and we call them in misomis in our language, native language. When the stones are hot enough, they're carried on a pitchfork one by one from the fire along a sacred path into the center of the canvas lodge. 
each hot stone is greeted with Hello, Grandfather, in Ojibwe. All in, the flap on the canvas lodge is shut, and it's time to sweat. I was also told it was time to turn the recorder off, as this is a sacred ceremony. In that heat, the pipe was passed around, Russell drummed, sang, and prayed. And boy, did it ever get hot in there. Yeah, between uh, 75 to 87, uh, I was uh, involved with uh, alcohol and drugs and, and uh, way down to the bottom. And uh, part of that was from the, from the residential school early years in the 60s. So I went to a wrong direction as a as a youth and a teenager. I went to uh, to the alcohol and drugs instead of going going to uh, healing. And uh, eighty seven, that's when I switched to uh, to this native culture, going to healing journey from there. So it's been over twenty one years now. I've been I've been doing my my self healing and. The other, with the other community members, and uh, it's been an honor to uh, to have that uh, wisdom and knowledge that I have now to to help other people that came from the same road as I am from alcohol and drugs. Well, what happened first of all? What happened was uh, in 1987, That's when I went to Winnipeg to sneak for a, a treatment treatment center. And when I was over there, uh, I started seeing things like uh, culture powwows and sweat lodges and traditional teachings. That's where uh, I catch, catch some of the activities, those healers, and try to teach us what, what uh, we lost here in our community. We start very, very low, low group now. We have the high group now, like maybe 25% now from the community. And some of the songs from the long time ago, they're starting to come back here in the community. Mm. Some songs, traditional songs, sacred songs. So most of my songs there, I sing on their own. They're my own songs. Do you dream them up or? They come, yeah, they come in dreams. Mm. Sometimes when you go fasting for four days out in the bush, you, you don't drink or no food, you you, uh, you get to know yourself better. You get to know the, the nature, the birds, the animals, the fish. And, uh, and uh, sometimes they come and visit you if you do it near the, near the river or lake. The animals come and see you during your fasting. So when you when that happens, that's when you make your song. Recently, the discovery of precious metals on their traditional lands has attracted several major mining companies to the area and is set to have a huge impact on their future. On the pragmatic side, new chief Harry Baxter told me about his vision for Agoki, or Martin Falls, as it was once known. Right now, my top priority here as a chief is uh, making an all-water route coming from the Keen up to here to across the river. So 
That's what I'm working on. Why right do you now. want that? I mean, because it's too high cost of living by aircraft, and Martin Falls is not going to survive if you keep on depending on aircrafts because of the price. See, what my intention is, uh, it's just like moving the Kino or Geraldton to year after. That kind of resources, because 90% of the people here live on welfare. And I want to improve that. Mm -hmm. So with this all-weather road, should, uh, should accommodate those things. Yeah. Because yeah. we could sell fuel, a lot of employment will, will be involved, along with the mining guys not only doing it just for this mining issues that are going on in our traditional area. Mm. What exactly but is happening there? They found nickel? They found nickel, copper, platinum, and <coughs> diamonds. Uh, it's about uh, 60 miles north of our area, but most of all the activities happening is in our traditional area, Martin Falls traditional area, so... So How there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of potential there. Well, I told them Martin Falls is open for business, business as aspect, mm -hmm. because we've got to get something here. We can't be living on welfare here. I'm not only looking at myself. I'm looking at these kids that are four, ten years old. Mm -hmm. I don't want them depending on welfare mm -hmm. when they grow up. I'm trying to provide jobs, you know, mm -hmm. to make a living here. So I can't see uh, Martin Falls surviving if he goes another five, ten years. They use it by, uh, by air. Eh? It's just, yeah, not, it's just feasible. not feasible anymore. Because, yeah. uh, like I told you, trapping and trapping and hunting is really. You can't depend on those things anymore because you can't make a living out of that. We're not any different from you or anybody mm. in the south here. So, yeah, I visit I visit communities like Thunder Bay, Toronto, and all that. And, you know, sure, it's a real out. It's a fast world out there. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I notice that when I go to Toronto. Yeah, yeah, but There's I mean, no tree there to climb. When you get lost. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Since my parents left Ogoki, many teachers have come to the community, but some didn't last long. I don't know, I guess it's mostly a shocking culture for teachers that come in here sometimes. Sometimes they don't last too long because of the behavior of the students sometimes. Why is that? Because they're going off hunting and trapping? No, no, it's just the language sometimes. One teacher that I drew from Tanabay, I told him, I gave him a heads up what to expect. Eh? Like I say, a five-year-old, six-year-old might tell you to go jump in a river or something along that line. Right, man. She didn't last one month. In my, uh, like, council, and uh, now that I'm a chief, uh, we've been talking about your dad and how he controlled his uh, school when he was here. So that's what we're saying. We need that kind of... Too bad there's no more Pat Maroney's like that, eh? <laughs> anyway, that's what we mostly talk about him, and I remember him as a, he was a good teacher here, and also the, your mom and all that. Interestingly, the day we were leaving coincided with their annual Treaty Day. 
A mentee flew in to give each status Indian or band member four dollars, honoring the treaty their forefathers signed in 1905, which clearly was not at all linked to inflation. As we were taking off, the community were gathering in their new powwow ground to celebrate Treaty Day with Bannock, the unforgettable traditional Indian raisin bread we used to have with hot chocolate at recess time, and click, spam-like processed meat that comes in cans. They accept the $4 sanguinely as symbolic of their ongoing relationship with the government. Mum and I flew out of Agoki at the end of May. We were back home in Ireland just before Prime Minister Stephen Harper's long-awaited official apology for the residential school system made international headlines on June 11, 2008. Perhaps that was some sort of closure from their nightmarish residential school journey, courtesy of the Crown. Now, may the road that we shared with them for a while rise with them. Or, to put it in our own language, Ganairi on Boher live. Um, welcome back. You are listening to Irish Radio Canada. We just heard that wonderful documentary by Deirdre Mulroney. Deirdre, fascinating story. And as you say, as a result of an Irish journalist, the residential school situation was terminated and Gord Downey then also focused in on this. Have you been in touch any time relatively recently with any of the folks up there? Yes, well, actually, I'm sorry to tell you that my dear dad passed away on uh, March 8, 2017. We had two funerals. Uh, one was in Toronto and the other was in Kilkee. And Sandy Munias, who was my mother's uh, teacher's aide in Agoki, came down from Thunder Bay and brought down some sage for my dad right, uh, right. At, at the funeral. It was a lovely touch, a lovely mark of respect for my dad, I think, you know, and we brought that. It was in an Ojibwe mug with some Ojibwe art on it, and we brought it to the church, spoke about their time in Ogoki as well. So, yeah, it's lovely to be in touch with them. It feels, you know, like we were very privileged to be there and be part of their journey as they are part of our journey. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, like, that this is our Irish-Canadian family album. You know, they were just amazed to see themselves in all of those photographs, you know, in our family album. Right. We're very, very connected. So it was very surreal for me then to see. And actually, my dad was still alive because the the album came out uh, twenty early twenty seventeen, wasn't it? Like, like Pearl, as you heard there in the documentary. Like I had never heard that story before. I didn't know what I was going to hear when I went up there. And the first person I interviewed was Pearl. And she opened up and told me the whole story about her brother in such a, an articulate, like, you know, emotionally evolved, intelligent way. Couldn't believe that. And then I had to go look up the McLean's Magazine article. And, um, you know, and for, for this very tragic and very significant and iconic story to being picked up by Gore Downey 
I mean, it's so poignant, you know, and so true. And for it to be an icon in truth and reconciliation, you know, with the native people, it's amazing. Well, Deirdre, we're going to have to wrap up. We're on time um, or out of it. And if anyone oh. wants to find you, I know you had a, a brief uh, interview when your film was shown here in, in Ottawa in 2017 at the Ottawa Irish Film Festival. If anyone wants to find you out there, you're on the web. Do you want to give us the website or your, your coordinates? Yeah. Yes, so look me up. I'm on com, and I would love to hear any feedback or thoughts anybody has. Well, thank you, Deirdre, and uh, it's been a real pleasure chatting. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on your show.